hello there. you've been listening to this show for any length of time, you've no doubt caught on to the soft spot we have for those heady, halcyon days often referred to as the Jesus movement of the 1960s and 70s, and the deeply countercultural and wildly eclectic music spawned by that movement. One stream of that music evolved to become what is now known as contemporary Christian music, the genre once benevolently ruled over by artists such as Michael W. Smith and Amy Grant, who we spoke to last year. And yes, another stream of Jesus movement-minded artists, people like T-Bone Burnett, Michael Bean, Bob Dylan, and the boys in U2, went a very different route, imbuing their art with faith and taking it to the whole world instead of creating music specifically for fellow believers. But between those two extremes, there was an underground, a world of rock stuck in a very hard place. And today's guests, as much as any other artists, helped to define it and refine it. John J. Thompson, and on this episode of the True Tunes Podcast, I am joined by the band Undercover, one of those second-wave Southern California bands who took the Jesus music mantle handed to them by groups like Love Song and Daniel Amos to the new-wave punkish kids of Orange County and the world, inadvertently cementing the idea of alternative Christian rock as a subgenre of CCM in the process. Undercover emerged in the early 1980s at the pole position of the frenetic OC scene that saw an explosion of bands such as Lifesavers, Altar Boys, The Lifters, Common Bond, Crumbacher, and Youth Choir. These bands and many other unsung heroes would fill high school auditoriums, bowling alleys, parks, and church youth halls with a righteous racket that thrilled teens, worried some parents, and eventually set the stage for the explosion of Christian rock in the 90s. The band's keyboardist, Ojo Taylor, was not only the onstage leader of Undercover, he also became an early curator of this burgeoning scene, managing labels, producing albums, and putting together one of the earliest compilation albums, What's Shaken, which we will spin a bit later when we crank up the now sticker-covered jukebox.
Joey would also go on to helm Brainstorm Artists International with Adam Again's Gene Eugene before eventually disbanding undercover and later walking away from not only the music, but his Christian faith in general. Joe, who is now a college professor, has also become a well-known online presence, some might say provocateur, vociferously challenging evangelical assumptions and debating fundamentalist positions on religion, politics, and cultural issues. And yet, when the Audio Feed Festival invited Undercover to reunite for a special show, he and his bandmates enthusiastically agreed and showed up ready to rock, old anthems and all. I got to sit down with Ojo and the rest of the band, drummer Gary Olson, guitarist Jim Nicholson, and vocalist Sim Wilson, in front of a live audience at Audio Feed. We'll hear all about their early days, the reason they came together in the first place, and why they were able to reunite in the summer of 2022, despite theological and philosophical differences, to make music. There may be some kind of societal secret sauce in here for us all, if we're lucky. It all takes off right after we take care of a little bit of housekeeping. Hey, this is Ray, and I'm a Patreon backer of the True Tunes podcast. I have also left a rating and review of the show at Apple Podcasts. Wasn't that hard. It didn't cost me anything. But this show means a lot to me, and I know that reviews and ratings make a big difference when it comes to how and if others discover these conversations. Would you take a few minutes? maybe even while you're listening, but please not while you're driving, to leave a rating and review. Even if you don't listen on Apple Podcasts, the reviews posted there push out to podcast platforms all around the world. Oh, and take some time to tell your friends about the show. Let's drive those numbers up together. Thanks. Hello, my name's Rob, and I'm one of the Patreon backers of the True Tunes podcast. I'm honored to invite you to join me in support of True Tunes by signing up on their email list. I know email is often annoying, but by being on the list, I get notified when new episodes drop and when new articles get posted at truetunes.com. Sometimes, John even sends out short notes and gives away records and swag and stuff. Super cool. But really, the point is that by staying directly connected, I know that they don't have to pay Facebook or anyone else in order for me to hear from them, and that's important. They don't send out too many emails either, and I'm always happy to get them. So really, it would be helpful if you'd join me over here. You can find the sign-up link on the front page at truetunes.com. Oh, and don't forget to add John's email address, jjt at truetunes.com, to your contacts so that the emails don't get caught in your spam filter. And if you have any feedback on the show or questions, you can email him and he'll get back to you eventually. Thanks for listening. We're back with the True Tunes podcast. Tomorrow is all within his hand. He's got the plan. 
I first heard Undercover right around the time I was also discovering Alter Boys, Youth Choir, Res Band, and many other early CCM underground rockers. Although they couldn't really be considered punk by mainstream standards, they were probably more like a cross between garage rock and new wave. Songs like Wait a Minute and God Rules certainly came across with a punk spirit. Undercover definitely set a certain tone during that second and third wave of alternative Jesus music coming out of Southern California. And it wasn't just with the music. Ojo's leadership off the stage was powerful too. While his spiritual migration away from evangelicalism was certainly not unique, when he publicly renounced his faith, it was a big deal to a lot of people. Why, many wondered, was he willing to come back and play these obviously Christian songs with his old band? So now, I invite you to join me at the Audio Feed Indoor Stage at the Champaign County Fairgrounds in Central Illinois. But you'll have to be patient with the sound. We had one mic for them to pass around, and it got a bit awkward. Bruce has done some amazing editing and signal boosting, but you'll just have to go along for the ride with my good friends undercover. I've been so excited about this conversation, I can't even contain myself. One of the first bands I heard, and I was like, wait a second, this was made for me. Please welcome Undercover. Come on up, guys. I was playing the What's Shaken record, and I played a little bit of it earlier, but I was playing it as people were walking in. This is one of the first records I got. I was probably uh, 12 or so, and I went to this little Christian bookstore, which I never would have gone into for any other reason than someone said, well, this is the only place you can find this stuff. And there was this weird guy who could tell I was looking for something like different, and he said, oh, there's this little section of records for the weird kids. And he, he got me this record he talked me into this and he talked me into the first altar boys record and a couple of import things and stuff like that but i remember like listening to this going oh my gosh southern california is just crawling with punk new wave bands they're playing in high schools it's all over the place and it's the coolest and i'm stuck in chicago and there's nothing here and god wants me to go to california that's just it that's all there is to it and um, that was not the case but I want to start by talking about the fact that you guys were kind of the f- freshman class of the second wave of those uh, Christian artists in California, with the first wave being the, you know, the love songs and the Jesus music artists. But then that second wave coming out, you were the upperclassmen, you were the veteran group that, that kind of plowed that, that soil. So tell me about first the, the genesis of this concept of undercover. Well, like Joe and I had already been going to Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, and we were playing in, we'd been, I mean, Joe and I have been playing in bands since high school. And uh, for me personally, I always wanted, uh, I mean, we were playing Deep Purple and Black Sabbath and I mean, all that stuff. But when like the Ramones and Sex Pistols and some of the punk bands came out, I'm like, yeah, this is way more like it for me personally and we were playing in a band 
you know, and we were writing, you know, lyrics that were from God through our heart. So we, we just started playing what we felt was natural, and, and it just kind of grew from there. So yeah, we were Christian, and we just, you know, musically, we just, I, I just totally got into that scene. We had no idea what we were doing. We were just like best friends that, that loved to play music and, you know, wanted to represent God and, and, and kind of just let people know that where we were at spiritually. And that's kind of just how the whole thing kind of grew and blew up. It came from a specific model back then. Jim's right. We think that, and you're right, John. The Southern California thing had its own thing going on. The first wave with love song and all that. And, and even after that, there were the mustard seed faiths and, and so on. I just talked to Odin Fong not two weeks ago which was fantastic, but we were reminiscing about this a little bit. We didn't think of ourselves as, oh, we're, we're the freshman class of the second wave of this stuff. We're just standing on the shoulders of these giants, you know, kind of following along these models. And yet we knew that the, the music they were playing was not really where we were or what the kids that we were playing to wanted to hear. I would say that the, the band that maybe bridged that gap a little bit between the first and second wave was probably Terry and DA. Right. Um, however, that was they were kind of more with associated with the first wave. The the whole second wave with us and Lifesavers and um, Chris Wimber really we those were the first two bands. But I remember uh, Lifesavers first and our first came out within days of each other, and someone invited me to. Uh, um, Rick Alva's house, I think, at the time, where we were doing the burrito bashes and, and um, to, to, to do a record release party of our first record. And I walked in and I was blown away because the house was full of teenagers and, and they were listening to, to our first record, Lifesaver's first record, and, and DA, I think it was probably horrendous disc, and, you know, pogoing in the living room and stuff. You remember all this, I'm guessing, but. Um, so that, that was the bridge, but yeah, the, um, it was a different thing. Jim, when you're talking about your inclination just being we're in a rock band and we're Christians and we're doing music, that sounds to me like what people like Randy Stonehill and Larry Norman and uh, the Agape guys like. It, it wasn't, uh, there wasn't a strategy saying, okay, now we're going to make Christian music as a separate thing. It was just, there's Jesus music all over the 60s. It was a normal thing for people to be talking about spirituality. But later it becomes a separate world where it's kind of the, one of the main purposes seemed to be to keep Christian kids from listening to secular music as opposed to engaging the whole world with just our, our theological, spiritual ideas. When did you kind of sense, oh, we're actually kind of doing a, a different thing here, like we're actually making Christian music as opposed to just making music as Christians? When we first started doing Christian music, it wasn't even, it was before Undercover. And then when Undercover came around, I think, like I said, we were just playing music and we said, well, you know, I, I don't get high and I don't get drunk and I, you know, I mean, all that kinds of stuff. So I'm not going to sing about those things. I want to sing about what's going on in my life. And so 
to me, yeah, there wasn't like here's Christian music, here's secular music when we first started. It wasn't until I guess we started getting more involved with the church that they started getting the labels. But you know, for a long time, and, and we did clubs and, and parties, and and you know, we didn't perceive ourselves as being Christian. We were just a band, and here's what we believe. And uh, it probably wasn't until well after the first album that we started maybe thinking that way. And like I said, it was mainly because then Christians latch on, and then all of a sudden there's these labels. And when we went to Europe the first time, it, Europe wasn't like that. It was just like if you're a band, you're a band, you know, and you go play and. You know, it, the rust takes care of itself. There, yeah. there is one another element of that too, and that is though that especially with our first two records, that the, the institutional church was when we came along, kind of just getting used to guitars and long hair, and and here we come uh, with a little, you know a whole different vibe, and and so it was a real uh, it was a jolt at least for Southern California culture, but. Again, the audiences were like, finally, it's about time, something that, that they could listen to. So, but, but none of this was pre-planned or, or, or anything like that. It's just the sociology we came from. God rules it made sense to me even just as a punk kind of thing because it was so confrontational and in your face and raw and offensive and you know like that was what punk music was it was designed to provoke a reaction and be a little bit offensive so as a 13 14 year old kid it didn't sound to me like it was designed to be it just made sense Undercover was, was an example of a band, if I'm right, that kind of started to grow and, and demonstrate your growth in your music. So you're, you're kind of wearing your growth on your sleeve and there's a trajectory even on your records. Am I right about that? We came from a punk sociology, but I, wouldn't, I don't think we ever thought of ourselves as a punk band. Right. We, it, it's the, the influence is there because we're from LA. Um, but. I, I don't think we ever saw ourselves as a punk band, and especially once Sim joined the band, uh, you know, you're right, Boys and Girls was kind of a turning point. It was a hard record to record for us uh, and with Bill, and Bill, would, I think, would acknowledge that. Um, he was the right guy for that record, but there's no question that where we were going after that, Sim was the right guy for, for where we went from, from there. God in heaven above has compassion hands wet with my tears He's been trying him for years Cry, cry myself to sleep Cry 
So Sim, tell me about when you joined in, and because you had a background before that too, and so what was your concept stepping into this thing, and, and tell me about the branded era and what Undercover became in that chapter. Well, I mean, I, and I've said this before, I think Undercover really had two very distinct, you know, seasons. And, um, you know, Bill Walden is a really good friend, and, uh, you know, there was a season of that. I remember getting in the band in uh, 1984, March of 1984. Uh, Mr. Gary Olson tracked me down on the Garden Grove freeway and, and asked me to audition. I on remember the freeway? Dis- <laughs> I remember distinctly that, um, that you know, um, going to the rehearsal and then handing me three albums. Of course, that was also included Boys and Girls. It wasn't out yet. And they said, learn these. We'll be back in a week. So that was kind of my entree into the band. But that was me um, really just picking up where Bill left off, right? I was still kind of just the singer of this first era. But, you know, it wasn't until, you know, until, you know, we really got into the branded uh, era when the new songs were written that we really started to kind of migrate more from a song, songwriting style, um, something that fit my voice so much better, um, things were, that were very meaningful and deep. Um, and it really changed quite, quite dramatically, you know, through a balance of power into devotion, you know, so really just two distinct, distinct eras. I'm just, I was thrilled to be able to, to, to be a part of the original season, but really, you know, the second season was really, was really what resonated with me. What was your familiarity with that first? Were you part of that, uh, kind of culture and scene that band scene from those days yeah well you know i i had been um i i had been in a band with some some people that you might know uh you know gene eugene from adam again um all of the guys from adam again you know paul um greg lawless you know those were that we all went to church together so we 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 formed this band a band called uh, martis at the time and how i i think i got introduced to undercover was that we um, open for Undercover at, at a concert, and I will tell you that, you know, again, I was, I was a little bit amazed, you know, because uh, if anybody was around during this time with Undercover, and I say this because I wasn't in the band at the time, you know, walking up to this uh, place we were going to play, there were, there were literally a line just like down the block and around the block. And, you know, there was, you know, when we played that night, there were 800 screaming kids like at at the top of their lungs. I'd never seen anything like it, but that was my entree. We just got to open up and kind of warm up for a band that had already, you know, hit a second gear. And uh, it was really just an amazing time. The chance to to be a part of that band was, uh, I, I just was, it was grateful. I feel like it was God led and, you know, that's how I got there. Joe, you also early on started getting involved in the leadership side of this with running labels and helping bands figure out a way to navigate this stuff and getting records out to kids like me. Um, tell me when you started to think, okay, I'm going to not just be the the band leader or coordinator of Undercover. I'm going to start running broken records or brainstorm that kind of stuff. Yeah, that wasn't um, planned either. I mean, we when. Jim and I were in the band before Undercover. We were lucky enough to, to um, 
record a demo tape at Whitefield Studio, which anyone that follows any of those Maranatha bands and stuff, you should recognize that name, Whitefield Studio. It, it was Maranatha Music's main studio. And I walked into the studio the first time, and it's one of those moments where, okay, it's like walking onto the bridge of the Starship Enterprise. And, and I thought, this is what I want to do with the rest of my life. And I knew in that moment. So uh, part of it, when we came out, when Lifesavers came out, and then Maranatha Music saw that there was a movement forming here, uh, they, I guess, asked me to, to kind of be the point person to corral all that, especially because the Maranatha record producers and stuff, great people as they were, didn't know what to do with us musically. How does Dan Willard, Kelly Willard's husband, produce Undercover? <laughs> so, so we had to learn quickly, get up on the, on the learning curve. And, um, and I, think, I think Maranatha just put me in charge of uh, you know, doing the What's Shaken record that you just played here. They gave me a staff producer job, and I think the rest is history. I did the first Alter Boys record and um, Crumbacher, all kinds of great stuff. My friends want to know what's happened to me. What are you into? What are you into? They've noticed that I'm changing. What are you into? What are you into? I'm not doing the same old things. What are you into? What are you into? So I told them honestly what's going on with me. I'm into God. That's what I said, man. I'm into Was the concept that there was inherent value in making music and making art, or was the, was the music and the art and the artistry more just seen as a way to get kids to come to church? I mean, we used to do, we had an undercover Bible study that used to meet at Chuck Swindoll's church um, every, every week. And the model that I mentioned earlier, the established model, was that Maranatha Music had these bands and they were absolutely evangelical in nature. And I suppose, so what Jim is saying is right. We just saw ourselves as a band. There's that aspect of it. But we also, I, I remember doing a press conference with Amy Grant in Dallas, Texas, where we, Amy and I went back and forth on this, um, that the idea of music as ministry versus music as art, and what's the intersection of the two, or is there an intersection of the two? There's, there's a lot of discussion about that, and I'm not going to say that there's a right or wrong answer. There's a right and wrong answer for us. But, but yes, back at that time, there was interest in bringing these, these kids, lots of them were errant, you know, just uh, lost, into the church fold and into Bible studies and, and somehow disciple them or something, um, bring them in. So... So no, it wasn't just about playing gigs and, and going home and patch on the head, here, buy our record, off you go. Right, yeah, I never perceived that. I just wondered, like, were you feeling that you were getting led, you were getting pastored or mentored by other artists or theologians kind of giving you a sense of the heritage of theology and creativity and the inherent benefit of beauty and... Or were you seeing this as a more pragmatic tool to get people to make a decision no, it about was not. Life? It was not a tool. And I'll turn this over to Jim, but for, I just want to say that, frankly, my dear, we didn't give a shit. <laughs> for us, we were around a lot of Christian artists. 
And I would hear them talk about trying to write songs that would draw people in and this and that. And I know for us and for me especially when I was writing, I didn't care what anybody else thought. If I wrote a song, it's what I believed was something that God wanted me. It was out of my heart, from God's heart to my heart. And I didn't care if anybody liked it or not, you know, because I felt this is, this is the song he gave me, you know, right. and I'm going to do it. Right. And I don't care if it, well, I don't care where it falls in the grand scheme of anything. You know, you want to be the best artist that you can be, but you also want to serve God the best that you can. And whatever, wherever the chips fall is what happens. And you felt encouraged in that, kind of allowed to do that in the community you were <clears throat> because in? Because we found that there's a lot of people that they didn't care about the other stuff either. Right. Want, I mean, the way you, you know, reach people is if, if they believe that it's really from your heart, people latch on to that a lot more than if they think it's just something that is not real. You know? right. yeah. And I'd rather sacrifice album sales or whatever radio play and have something that's real than try to get popular or whatever, you know? Right. And that's what I'm saying. We were just some knuckleheads that were right doing music and, and it, it becomes what it becomes. And even today, I have people coming up to me saying how much this meant to them and that meant to them. And at the time, you're like, you're just, I'm just writing a song that I think God wants me to write. Joe, as you were seeing Brainstorm, and you guys really, you found a creative groove with those artists going into the 90s. I mean, with Adam again, with, with your solo stuff, with SFC, you guys really found a, a goldmine of very vibrant music that was in that kind of between space, that liminal space. Tell me about that era and you kind of getting into that role as the A&R guy and the record company guy and what was that like? And Yeah, well, I wish there I could tell you that a lot of that was thought out and deliberate too, but it <laughs> was, just wasn't. Um, right. We found that the farther east you went, the less, interested, the less interest there was in what California was doing. So, I mean, we played Cornerstone a bunch of times, right? But, but we, I don't think we played east of Cornerstone more than a handful of times. We couldn't get Creation Festival interested in us or any, any of the uh, big uh, industrial machines there. Not, not that we lost any sleep over it, but that's just the way it, it worked out. On the other hand, especially after Boys and Girls, so what Sim was saying about Branded was absolutely true, that, that, we, that the focus shifted a little bit to where uh, it took some doing for the church. We were a jolt, and the lyrics had to be somewhat simplistic just to get past the cultural obstacles and barriers that a lot of folks had to what we were doing. Once that kind of that barrier was removed, then you started seeing other bands like Adam again show up that, that didn't have to be evangelical 
or overt in in their lyrics they could just focus on the on their art in the music and and of course that's where we wanted to go too bands like 77s and mike you, you know that that goes without saying uh, same thing with the rappers we just if we were going to do rap we wanted to do the best rap we could on the budget that we had we weren't thinking about what the rest of the country would think of us or what we were doing um, we just did what we thought we wanted to do and it just resonated like a fat mouse is caught in a trap So all your lips when you try to rap No, I'm not capping on your style Just listen to see if the lyrics are worthwhile Don't you know what you do to a brother When your lyrics are x-rated and so is it cover You think it's cool, you think it's no fun But how much fun will it be when God comes? Do you think God appreciates your acts? Do you think he doesn't have the facts? Sorry to bust your enormous air bubble Sorry if you think I'm causing much trouble But I'm trying to teach you what I know Everything I know before I go Pick up that dusty rabbit from the counter Let me show you what I encountered First Timothy 4, 12 talks to It says let no man despise thy youth James 3, 6, guess my message done It says right in hell, sits your tongue And all for you who think you can walk both ways First Corinthians 10, 21 says You can't drink out of Jesus' cup and the devil's cup So yo, tell me what's up Cause you'll never learn till Jesus you find You just caught in a land of time so then, uh, at what point did you guys feel like Undercover had kind of run its course and it was time to go on hiatus or whatever you called it? I don't remember the wording, or I don't know if I ever even heard what the wording was, but it, it certainly was the frequency of releases went to like one every 12 years or something like that. What was, the, what was happening in, in the story there? Well, my opinion, and I'll pass the mic, um, but my opinion was probably after the Devotion record, there were some things that were going on in each of our lives. I think that uh, Jim and I stayed together for one more record, the Forum record, which some people love and some people aren't so crazy about. It's a different record, but um, this lineup of Undercover, I think, ran its course after Devotion. But you know, here we are. And what about you, Gary? Yeah, what do you think? Hi. Yes, uh, Joe said something that kind of sparked a memory, and that is, you know, uh, I think uh, Christian bands kind of had a, have a tendency to uh, fall into that formula to preach and do the altar calls and all that stuff. And I think Undercover uh, attracted people that were they were uh, they had deeper problems I mean they um, their lives were you know on the line uh, they were suicidal mm. you know and so that kind of became um, part of our calling I think was to be there for those for those people and just to love them and be them there for them Need 
Jim, I remember having a conversation with you around the time that your wife passed away and your willingness to talk about that just even on a personal level meant so much to me because I had gone through some painful stuff as a kid that I was not finding people in the music space that I felt I could really talk about stuff like doubt and fear and insecurity with because it felt like a lot of it was more about you had to have you could have a story you could have a past but then Jesus just fixed everything and it was all about your testimony was about the bad stuff in the past but now everything was healed and your transparency when you talked about the anger and frustration and fear that you experienced then it meant a lot to me uh, and I think you're right, Gary, that, that triggers a memory to go that you guys were one of those bands. I think Mike Pritzel and others have, have been a part of the family that are saying, no, we're, we're willing to talk about the, the hurt. Um, and I think you guys have, have done that. I appreciate it. I know a lot of us have appreciated that. Yeah, because I think when we were talking, part of it too is Jesus said he came to give us life and life is everything. There's good, bad, and Christians don't like to talk about the bad stuff. Everything is sugar-coated. It's a lot of glitter and glam and bright lights, but the bottom line is you go home and you go to bed at night and, you, and, you're, and you're trying to get to sleep and you got pain. And so for me, I mean, it's still hard to talk about stuff 30 something years later, but um, that's what you're, where your faith comes in. I want to bring this up because I know everybody's waiting for us to talk about it. So I get extra credit if I can get you saved today. Um, but I have never had a problem with doubt. I think that the idea that, I, I think certainty is a bigger enemy of faith than doubt is. Um, and one of the things I've always loved about Undercover and 77s and Daniel Amos and all, a lot of these bands that, I've, that people now know, all this music has welcomed doubt and has become a soundtrack to doubt. And I think that we, we do that, we need that doubt. And these days, I think if, you, if you're not doubting, you're not paying attention, you're not engaged. Um, so tell me about, the more obvious question is, you've been really public about your, uh, the, the trajectory of your spiritual uh, journey. What is it like for you to go back and, and on this path and go backwards 30 years and play these songs and come to an event like this? How does that sound? Yeah, um, I appreciate the question, John. Um, there, there are things that I don't, I just can't bring myself to believe that I used to believe. So there's, there's that element just cut and dried. As far as the doubt thing goes, this has to go with what Gary said a minute ago, that the people that were listening to our records, um, a lot of them did have deeper issues than just, okay, I want to be saved and become a Christian. There, we were tapping into something there and we didn't know it but we found ourselves in the middle of it. And, and I think a lot of that had to do with doubt. The, the lyrics in the song Devotion just came here to find a place, to find a way, to find my way, and all you do is talk about people. There's, so there's two institutions that that song is dedicated to, the family and the church. 
where, where there's no answer here. Uh, and, and it's not so much that, that, that I'm saying that it's false or anything, it's just that people weren't finding answers and we were tapping into something. I scratched my head and thought, well, you know, in the real world, you would write songs about this kind of stuff and it's a, it, nobody thinks twice about it. Why is this such a big deal in, in Christian music that we're just being honest about the trajectory of our life? So, um, and that's a rhetorical question, you know. <laughs> well, I mean, answer it. Why, why is it such a big deal? I, I have, I, I don't know, and maybe, maybe Sim has a better answer, but, but let, me, let me get to the second part of your, um, to your question about the, the being at a Christian festival playing these songs with these guys. First of all, if you asked me, with my feet to the fire, what Gary believes about religion and politics, I couldn't tell you. If you ask me what Sim believes, I couldn't tell you. And if you ask me what Jim, my lifelong best friend, believes, I couldn't tell you. I could roughly tell you. Point is, it doesn't matter to us when we, when we get on stage. We know that we're a family, and we know that we love each other, and we know that we make kick-ass music, and that's really all we want to do. <laughs> so there's that. But the, the second thing is that we all agree on the songs that we want to play and don't want to play. We all pretty much agree on where we are artistically with our catalog, so there's that. The third thing is, people write love songs for women they no longer love, you know? <laughs> do what do they, does that mean they stop singing the song? Does Eric Clapton stop singing Layla because he's not, you know, right. involved with Patty Boyd or whatever her name was, you know? Right. It's, just, it's a fantastic song. So. I don't feel like I have to align 100% with every lyric and every song. The next point is that those songs were all part of our path, every, every one of us, and we honor that in each other. What, uh, what those songs meant to me and the ones that I wrote are like my children in a sense. I still cry over them because I know the heart the, and the mind and the soul that went into writing those songs. The last thing I'll say about this is that I think that those songs mean something to other people. Yeah. Um, and, and who am I to withhold that experience from someone? Uh, you know, once, I've said this before, once a song leaves your studio, it doesn't belong to you anymore. Right. It goes out to the world, belongs to the world. And, and if I can help bring someone a little joy and peace and comfort in their life by playing this song, Belief is overrated. Agreement is overrated. You know, love is underrated, right. and and that's kind of where where I'm at with uh, with all that. Darkest night and searching skies. I can almost see your eyes in the stars. You wait for me until I'm free to cross the bridge alive. Painted clouds of fire red. I saw your face and what was said. I think what I would say is we're all on different paths. And, you know, here's, here's something that I don't need Joe's path to be the same as mine, to love him. I don't need it. I don't need him to, to follow my set of beliefs. I don't need him to go to my church. I just don't need him to follow what God's leading me to do. I am, what I have to do is I have to follow where God's leading me. 
But I will tell you, I, I feel 100% the same as Joe, that we are a family. When we get together, when we're up on stage, it feels so right. I can't, I can't tell you much more than that. It feels natural and it feels right. The songs feel right. And I will tell you just how I feel. The tears still flow on the songs that mean something to me. So, you know, I want to play the songs. I want for people to feel that same feeling that I'm feeling because I believe that it resonates and I believe that we connect through those songs. And so I'm grateful and I'm thankful to all of you for allowing us to be here and do this. Sim and I talked about this at my house a couple weeks ago. The songs that were written, like I've said before, when we write a song, I mean, I believe it's the Holy Spirit is ministering through there. So it doesn't matter with us if we're all on the same page religiously, spiritually, whatever. God's still going to use it. And like Joe said, it's like, why would we not come up and play these songs? You know? I know there's some people that are here that were at the House of Blues show that we did last month at, in Anaheim. And I'm telling you, it was, uh, you could feel the presence of God at that show. And it was pretty awesome. And so why would we not want to do that again? <laughs> you know? As Joe was just saying, it felt the same way that when we left 20 years ago or whatever it was. Every, when we left the stage, when we got back up, it felt the very same way. Hey, that's miraculous right there. Do you think that there's something exhibited in the way your relationship is being navigated and the way you have a mission to make music that people can enjoy despite possibly having certain aspects of your path that are divergent that we might be able to apply to the division we see writ large that is tearing apart families, tearing apart faith communities, tearing apart countries, tearing apart communities. I don't know if it's about extracting it from our story, but our story is just similar to the, the world at large. I think we need to step off of our own selves and just see people as people and love them as people. If we peeled back everyone here, there's going to be sin exposed. I mean, we all have that. And different beliefs exposed. We all have that. But I think that we're just an amalgamation of some differences and maybe some different paths the same way the world is, the same way that families are. I mean, the only time that you get into everybody trying to perform and, and be on the same exact path is, is, you know, I don't know where that is because even in the church where I'm part of a church, I grew up in the church, okay, even in the church, 
I'm telling you, people's paths aren't the same. I was a preacher's kid. I know this. I know that behind the veil of all of this, people's lives were a mess. Hey, we're messy. And I guess maybe that's where we are. We're messy people, but the four of us love each other, and that's what matters to us, and I hope that continues for a long time. I also think that families, your communities and everything, there's a lot of division, and the bottom line is to love each other. I mean, and that's if you want to get along and, ha- and be successful. You just need to ig- ignore all the, the stuff that you don't like about somebody and just, you know I mean? There's stuff that you can love about people. And focus in on that. We all have different paths. We all do believe in something different. But the bottom line is I need to take care of me. I need to figure out my own thing and my relationship with God. And I only worry about that. I do think there's something to be said for that. With us, there's just way too much history here in the first place um, to let some kind of doctrinal difference or theological, even if even the, the 180 that, that I've done personally and how it's 180 from what some of these guys might believe. But you know what? They've never made an issue of it, and I've never made an issue of it. So... I don't know that there's a name for that. I don't know what to call it. We just do what we do. And we, after the House of Blues a couple weeks ago, it felt so much different in the sense that it felt the same as it always did. It was powerful and beautiful and lovely, and there was a spirit of love that fell on that room like, like I don't know, like it always did. And we, after that, got together and said, well, what do you guys think about doing new, new some... And some new songs, you know, would, would there, should we try to do an EP or something? Is there a lyrical common ground? Because look, we're not just about writing songs that might get played on the radio. We, song, Sim sings the songs like he believes them. And we want to write songs that are going to have an impact on the people in the same way they have an impact on us when we write them. Is there a place where we could write write music and have the lyrics come out to where the, we could you know um, bring our bring the same level of energy and intensity to those mu- to the music and we all agreed that there was deeply in this band from these guys you know we see each other you know we traveled the world uh, together and we saw you know each other's failings and you know it's really an awesome thing when you're forgiven you know when Joe forgives me of something that or Jim or Sim there's just there's nothing like it and uh, 
this is something I can say that, that really sets undercover apart, and it's we love you, you know, and we want to talk to you, and we want to uh, help in any way that we can, um, because, you know, there's always this healing that needs to be happening with some people out in the audience that need to talk to somebody, and it, and it goes beyond the spiritual. It's, it, it's in a very basic, it's life itself. And um, these guys will take the time to talk to people. And I cannot tell you how many people have come up to me at a restaurant or wherever and said, hey, you know what? You're an undercover, aren't you? You know, I talked to Joe and he saved my life. I mean, I was, I was gonna commit suicide. And you know, this happens a lot. I'll, I'll say this, that, uh, one more thing, that, that after um, we played a few weeks ago, uh, th this, it became clear to me, and I think to these guys, I don't want to put words in their mouth, but Undercover is bigger than any one of us. It was a thing, and who wouldn't want to be a part of this? When I got up on that stage, I felt a sense of, man, I am not worthy. I'm not, I, I, I'm not worthy to, do, to, to be part of the band that I had put together with, with these guys, you know, and yet... I, I think the realization there is that there's something there that's just bigger than any one of us and I, we feel, it. I feel it's a sacred place and I want to take my shoes off and I'm not worthy to stand there. Joe, you're, you've been working with students. Are you still doing uh, music industry work with students? Yeah, I just finished my 15th year at James yeah. Madison, and I teach songwriting and artist management and music yeah. publishing. You've had know, worked been, with some of my yeah, students, yeah. which just blew me away. That I was know, like, it's what? crazy. We're in the same um, realm. So tell me, like, how, how have you applied your experience with Undercover and with the labels in our little weird world into working with students that are yeah, yet to yet to have any of this damage. They're just fresh, you know, newly minted people that get to go, you know, invent this for themselves. Well, when they told me the classes they wanted me to teach, I'm looking at some of the, you know, outline the topics and I'm thinking, oh my God, I don't know how I'm gonna teach that. I don't know anything about that. And then I'm like, wait a minute, of course I do. I lived this for 20 years, you know. Um, so I, I bring our experience to, to the theory of the, the subject matter. And that's meaningful to them because I, I think to have a professor that has actually lived what they're teaching, um, you know, I get a lot of questions from them about how to do things. And so, I, you know, Christina, the girl that you worked with, now is the director of copyrights at Universal Music Group. Yeah. And Chris Stapleton's manager is one of my students. I've got yeah. students that are signed to major labels and, and just at, at, at the highest at working at Sound Exchange. So they've all gone past me, which I think is the way it's supposed to be. You know, we springboard them in, yeah. into the future, but it's, 
it's our little humble roots as, as a band, I think, uh, and coupled with my education, I guess I accidentally over-educated myself along the way here and ended up being <laughs> a professor, which I didn't plan, ever plan on doing. Two but master's degrees right here. <laughs> yeah. It's a good way for old rockers to, to avoid living room concerts the rest of your life and chill for... Uh, well, thank you, guys. Everybody undercover, give it up. What a wonderful time. Thanks again to Undercover, Joe Taylor, Gary Olson, Jim Nicholson, and Sim Wilson. And thanks to the staff and audience at AudioFeed. You can find some pics and a clip of God Rules on the show notes page for this episode at TrueTunes.com. Don't go away. The True Tunes podcast will be right back after this. Hello, I'm Chris, and I'm a Patreon supporter of the True Tunes podcast, which has quickly become one of my favorite podcasts. I can always expect John's warm voice and insightful questions to draw out the stories, wisdom, and faith of beloved and new to me musical artists. After every episode, I'm always listening with fresh ears to favorite albums or visiting new albums for the first time. True Tunes Patreon supporters support the show with monthly donations of $5, $10, or $20 which helps cover the cost of producing and hosting the show. As a thanks for our support, we get early access to episodes and high-quality, lossless WAV files of each episode that we can download. We also have occasional Zoom meetups, some special live streams, discounts on TrueTune swag, and more. You can join me and the other patrons by visiting patreon.com slash truetunes or finding the link on the show notes page. If an ongoing patronage thing is not the right fit for you, but you'd like to give a tip to help with the costs associated with this show, you can find links for that on the show notes page. Thanks. True Tunes is on the road. I've been to Indiana, California, Tennessee, Iowa, and Illinois so far, and we are currently looking at opportunities around the country. These conversations have been a lot of fun, with me bringing a turntable and some records and a guitar, and often finding artists or other special guests to join me. I've also done songwriting workshops, music business clinics, and even some conversations about how we can slow ourselves down and listen to music more carefully, more thoughtfully, and yes, more spiritually. So there's kind of something for everyone. You can follow all of the action at truetunes.com slash events. And if you would be interested in having me come speak in your neck of the woods, drop me a line at jjt at truetunes.com and let me know. I'm also excited to be aligning with the Porchlight Network for house shows. Porchlight is a growing network of house show venues around the country, and you can learn more at porchlight.art. So, for house shows, look me up at Porchlight. For schools, venues, churches, or other opportunities, just connect with me directly. Hey there, I'm Mark Feldbush, and I'm a Patreon backer of the True Tunes podcast, and I follow and listen to the weekly Spotify gallery stage mixtape that John curates for us every week. I get to hear classic artists that I really dig and discover new artists. Every week, usually on Wednesdays, the mix is updated with around 40 songs from brand new releases to deep cuts and from across a wide range of genres, including rock, Americana, indie, gospel, blues, sacred music, soul, and so much more. 
It's also great to hear a mix that blends up great music that is just good, beautiful, and true without all of the genre and market limitations and boxes I hear everywhere else. You can find the mix on the front page at truetunes.com or on the show notes page for this episode. And if you follow it, it will live there in your Spotify browser and update automatically each week. And don't miss the massive archive list where all previous lists get saved. And as great as Spotify is for music discovery, please support the artists you love once you hear and discover them there. Thanks. Welcome back to the True Tunes podcast. Our trusty jukebox has been patiently waiting her turn to spin some of the other gems from the early Orange County alt-Christian underground, so we've dug up a few key titles from the era to give this whole conversation some context. I've ripped a sticker off an old deck and wrapped it around this skateboard key. Let me jiggle it in the slot and see what we can get her to play. We got something more than just salvation. We got something more than just salvation. We got Jesus. Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. Ground zero for the Jesus music scene of the early 70s famously launched Maranatha Music to support the music ministries of groups like The Way, Children of the Day, Gentle Faith, Love Song, and other Jesus rockers of the day. But it only took a few years for Maranatha Music to become more known for their massively successful praise series of albums and other adult contemporary CCM music. The leadership at the church, though, remained committed to the idea that music could be a powerful way to connect with young people in the 80s. So, as hairstyles migrated from long and flowing to high and spiky, Maranatha launched a sub-label called the Ministry Resource Center, or MRC Records, to record and release projects by rock, new wave, pop, rockabilly, and even punk bands, with young people like Undercover's Ojo Taylor helping to find the talent and pull together the albums. MRC released underground albums and a compilation album that eventually made its way to my eager little hands all the way in the Chicago suburbs. That low-budget set, called What's Shaken, did for me what Maranatha One, the everlasting living Jesus music concert LP, had done for my parents' generation. This collection of eclectic rock and pop songs would have made almost no sense at all unless you were a Christian kid desperate for what would soon be called alternative rock. If you were, though, it was mind-blowing. packaging was appropriately 80s new wave, and just low tech enough to not really show you what any of these bands actually looked like. And although a few of the bands had been active before this compilation was released, like Undercover for instance, most would have seen their first wide exposure with the release of this collection. Undercover got things rolling with One of These Days, which actually came from their third album, but the second cut, by a group called The Proclaimers, that is definitely not the Scottish duo of 500 Miles fame, is a synth-pop praise ditty called Rejoice that really made me want to join an Orange County youth group. Another nice city on the beach 
then came the even synthier debut by Stephen Krumbacher, It Don't Matter, a hyper-pop song that fell somewhere between Devo, Soft Cell, and the sounds my buddy Rob and I were coaxing out of his Casio drum machine and a Korg Poly 6 keyboard. It was mesmerizing. Everyone's coming up with new ideas. Other notable debuts on the set included Alter Boy's Go For You and Youth Choir with a very chipper sounding pop song called It's So Wonderful. Oh, it's so wonderful to be in love with you. Rockabilly band The Lifters had been around for at least one EP before this comp, but their appearance on What's Shaken with a song called Listen Children featured a female singer named Marnie Ann, who set the stage for another young lady when The Lifters founder Chris Burgandy and other members set up a new version of the band called Wild Blue Yonder with a young Crystal Lewis. favorite tracks on this set was a very Devo-esque track called Idols by a group I never heard anything from again, Omega Band.
leave it to Sharon McCall, who had been in an early version of the 77s, aka the Scratch Band, to show up here with a solo track that rocks harder and darker than anything else on the record. From the Grave was a fun one to play in the garage, that's for sure. unfortunate enough to hear any of my earliest band's recordings, you might notice a lot of influence from another of the more obscure bands from this set, CIA. I adored their blend of hard rock guitars, sci-fi synths, and punkish vocals. If you took Branded Era Undercover and Shaded Pain Era LSU and a good bit of CIA and then reduced the basic talent level by about 10 years, you'd have me at 14 playing along to this album. One track that really sets itself apart on this set is a sophisticated modern rocker titled Apathy by Malcolm and the Mirrors. Malcolm Wilde, who had been one half of the duo Malcolm and Alwyn, was part of the original folky Jesus music era before finding some edge with this follow-up group. As cool as this track is, Malcolm kind of sounds like the requisite adult here, but the song is great with all of its nuke-fearing 80s energy. No way out. Joe explained to me that the plans for this record had begun before he was tapped to take over A&R and production, and the tracks by Malcolm and the Mirrors and Sharon McCall were already lined up. 
Joe was recruited to bring in the younger artists and did exactly that. He produced the rest of the songs, save for the youth choir track, hence the somewhat hodgepodge feel. And while What's Shaken is certainly not a brilliant album, it is an important one. It laid a critical foundation for what was to come. The church-run label, MRC, provided enough of a platform to get these bands and this scene off and running. But then, suddenly... It was over. The church sold Maranatha Music, and the new owners shut down MRC and the Broken Records label they had launched and had allowed Ojo to oversee overnight. All of the bands were let out of their deals. The folks who were on staff at Calvary as artists were fired. A pastor at Calvary filled the void by starting a new label, Frontline Records, and began signing former MRC artists left and right, but that's a story for another day. Ojo Taylor took what he had learned running Broken Records from Maranatha and joined forces with Adam Again's Gene Eugene to start Brainstorm Artists International. Brainstorm took artistry up a notch for sure and brought sophisticated hip-hop into the mix with groups like SFC, Freedom of Soul, and Idol King. Curtain drawn back, lights come on, beats thrown in, crowd starts yelling, tight grip on the mic and we're telling the truth, cause it'll set you free, L-E-S-Q-P, of course, we heard all about Brainstorm's role in the release of the now-legendary Live 88 album by the 77s just a few episodes ago. Lost Dogs, Daniel Amos, Adam Again, Undercover, Brainstorm took the lessons learned, pretty much all the hard way, and established a company that really didn't release any garbage. Although most of the projects that Brainstorm released were worthy of general market consideration, the distribution paradigm under which they operated would guarantee that would never happen. Still, enough of an underground existed on the fringes of the CCM world for these artists, and the fans who love them, to exist, and certainly gave the original True Tunes a lot of great music to write about and promote. And the soil that MRC, Broken, Frontline, and Brainstorm broke in the underground of the 80s made room for labels like Tooth and Nail and Five Minute Walk to thrive in the 90s.
little buddy Well, you mean the world to me If it wasn't for your wisdom Hey, I don't know where I'd be And even though we're miles apart Remember what I said Get to heaven Hop an hour before the devil Know we get dead I find that that you are Indeed, I've never met your match The seconds keep on ticking By the bay on my watch And you won't last forever here When all is done and said Get to heaven Hop an hour before the devil Know we get dead Compilations continued to be a critical piece of the proliferation puzzle when it came to alternative Christian music. One local Southern California DJ and concert promoter, John Smeeby, created events and a show under the Reality Rock brand. Due to the improved craft of the underlying material, his third wave compilation also helped usher in the 90s scene in a big way. Sampler was instrumental in assisting artists like the Violet Burning and the Prayer Chain in getting radio airplay and making concert outreaches beyond California. Third Wave set also introduced many folks to our dear friend, the late Brian Healy and Dead Artist Syndrome. You're the one I dreamed of all my life. You're the one who makes my dreams come true. It's a beautiful world. And the stars always shine. And I'll have to feel. I've got angels watching over me It's a beautiful world And the sun always shines Hopefully you caught Dan McIntosh's review of their recent fourth wave collection at TrueTunes.com, which brings many of the songs from the third wave to vinyl for the first time and offers new selections by artists such as the 77s, Adam Again, Dakota Motor Company, and Lost Dogs.
One of the bands that broke out of the early 90s alternative Christian underground was an industrial rock duo called Mortal. Made up of Jerome Fantamias and Gyro Zahn, Mortal turned a lot of heads and made a lot of, well, noise, before shutting down operations under that name and restarting with a more alternative rock sound under the name Fold Zandura. Jerome eventually left the group to join up with Switchfoot, who he still plays with today. But he and Gyro just announced the formation of a new project called Morzan that promises to combine elements of Mortal and Fold Zandura. We're keeping tabs on that story and have assurances from Jerome for a podcast appearance following Switchfoot's summer tour. In a way, this compilation tradition continues every week when I pull together playlists for you on Spotify. It's so easy to curate music now that the hardest part is just getting people to listen. Back then, the music was more precious and those compilations were a big deal. We treasured them. I know that some of the artists caught up in that scene ended up feeling like the churches simply used them to draw kids in. They thought they were part of a mission, a movement, but they were really part of a market. And when the market shifted, there was no clean exit to be found. Lots of people got hurt. It was more common than not to hear about artists not getting paid, having their album sessions abandoned and releases discontinued and receiving little to no support. Simply put, it got ugly for our heroes. Some of the kids listening, though, found new ways to do things. And in the 90s, new labels emerged, new markets emerged, and the whole scene completely exploded. In my eyes I see a blur of things That others see so clearly In my strength I run away from things That cause my heart to Jukebox is getting that cynical look on her face, so that will have to wait for another episode. We've already covered a lot of ground on this episode, so as I pull out my soapbox to wrap this up, I don't have a lot to add, but I am thinking about a question that a good friend and someone close to this scene and this story asked me right before the festival and this interview. He wondered why someone like Joe Taylor, who changed his mind about what he believes about Christianity, would feel comfortable singing songs about the faith, songs he wrote when he did believe those things, 
for an audience at a festival that is at least somewhat connected to the Christian community. Wouldn't that be awkward? Wouldn't he be setting himself up for loads of uncomfortable confrontations with eager fans? It certainly wasn't for the money, and it's not like Undercover is selling a lot of albums or promoting songs to radio these days, so why? Joe answered that exact question very directly, so I don't need to recap his response here. But there's another idea or two behind that question that I think is worth considering. First, many people have found themselves in different spiritual places as they grow than they inhabited when they were young. Some change their beliefs, some abandon certain beliefs, some find new ways to understand their faith, they continually examine their prejudices and assumptions and hold everything up for critique and thoughtful consideration. I think that, for the most part, that's how growth works. Unfortunately, many people find themselves in systems or communities that don't encourage or even allow for growth, examination, or evolution. Instead, they're often forced to jettison things and start from scratch. I'm glad my family doesn't love that way. There was a shift in Undercover's music that I noticed and resonated with when I was about 16. They moved from cranking out fun, though simplistic, belief-based songs with lyrics that worked well on t-shirts and bumper stickers to crafting emotionally charged, dense music that ran straight into the hardest questions instead of trying to avoid them. Their album Branded, with songs such as Cry Myself to Sleep and Darkest Hour, showed me that it was okay to be vulnerable, honest, and raw. All these years later, I guess I'm not surprised to hear that the undercover family doesn't love the way so many conditional, institutional, manufactured communities do. The ties that bind them together are stronger than the differences that make them individuals. There's another kind of shift that happens too. There are some who, though they boldly and simply claim to remain faithful to their convictions, don't seem to cultivate a spirituality that is any more sophisticated than those catchy slogans, bumper stickers, or t-shirts. They lack the ability to think critically or to navigate complicated cultural or emotional terrain. When things get tense or scary, they turn to their slogans, their mantras, or their simplistic formulas. They may say they are religious, they may claim a type of faith, but where is the fruit of their spirituality? Where is the love? What kind of music is their heart making? At their best, a band is a type of family. A family is just a web of relationships. When we listen to a band play, we hear a sonic picture of a family at work. In my conversation with Chagall Guevara, Dave Perkins talked about how the great rock bands were always full of tension and that great songs are almost always born from a push and pull and friction of a dynamic that is always on the verge of falling apart. That kind of chemistry is compelling, at least in part, because we all live in that kind of tension every day. And I think some part of us wants to experience that place where we know we can lose it, fly off the rails, fall into pieces, and not get kicked out of the band. We belong, come what may. That's the power of relationships, and it's amazing how quickly we allow the things that matter most in this life to be torn asunder by things we barely understand. I love the way Joey said it. Belief is overrated. Agreement is overrated. Love is underrated. It is impossible for us to remain connected to our friends, family, and neighbors when we allow our relationships to be defined by the things that differentiate us as opposed to the things we have in common. 
There are powerful forces at work today, however, who profit in one way or another from our divisions, our differences, and our sense of grievance or entitlement. When we set those things aside and focus on the things that unite us, we defang those monsters. We deprive grievance of the oxygen it needs to survive. We are left with freedom, freedom to love others, to accept and move forward instead of constantly looking backward. Music can bring us together when we let it, but it can certainly drive us apart as well. I love that the members of Undercover find community in their purpose, in their music, and in their desire to serve their audience. That purpose transcends their differences of faith and belief, allowing space for growth, change, and hope. I've been thinking about that quite a bit. How might I apply that approach to reconciliation and unity in my life? Instead of seeking to win arguments, maybe I focus more on agreeing on purpose and engaging with those with whom I disagree on a common mission. Maybe, as we see the beauty in our fellow humans and we experience the transcendent power of serving and we touch on the eternal through our creativity, the belief part will take care of itself. Okay, I'm climbing off my soapbox now. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Joey, Jim, Sim, and Gary, and to Jim and Luke and the rest of the audio feed staff for making this possible. We also want to thank Bruce Near for remastering the What's Shaken and Third Wave music for the jukebox. Please check out the show notes page for the full list of music and more, including some great photos from Undercover Set. Please do all the stuff. We really need it. The email list, the Patreon, the Spotify playlist, telling your friends about the show. It all really helps. Thanks. This podcast was written and produced by me, JJT, with co-production, editing, and sound design by Bruce A. Brown for Gyroscope Productions. The contents of the program are protected by U.S. copyright law and are the intellectual property of Gyroscope Productions, with the exception of songs or clips that are from previously copywritten material. Everything on this episode is used by permission or under fair use provisions. Thoughts and opinions of our guests do not represent the positions of the producers or our sponsors. Discernment is recommended. The program is intended for the private use of our listening audience. Gyroscope Productions can be reached at JJT at TrueTunes.com or P.O. Box 60401, Nashville, Tennessee 37206. Until next time, this is JJT reminding you to reinforce your argument instead of simply saying the same thing louder. Or, better yet, just turn over the record, drop the needle, and give your adversary a hug. Peace. and sizzling. We have a small technical problem. Sim, it's all yours. Thank you! An institution becomes self-perpetuating, and when an institution becomes self-perpetuating, the people become secondary. Because my life has not lived out before a board. Thank you! Southern California. Thank you! Southern California. This is a very special evening. A live album tonight. We need your help on this one. Wait a minute. I'm gonna get on a soapbox here. Absolutely. Uh, Stop the tape machine in the truck. Uh, you wanna hear a couple new tunes? Absolutely. Thank you!
Joy Broom, Jim Chevalier, Ricky Michelle, and Gary Olson on drums, Sim Wilson on vocals. This is Jim. Thank you! Thank you! Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.